Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to the 8th chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, our text this morning, under the title, Assurance Through the Resurrection. Our church family has been walking through the book of Romans these past six weeks, seven now, in a series called The Roman Road. We've studied together six key passages from this wonderful book of the Apostle Paul that when comprehended, when memorized, when applied, equips a person to share the gospel message with anyone the Lord would put in their path. But this morning, Resurrection Sunday morning, I want us to look at the book of Romans one more time to another key passage. Not only a key passage of Romans, but a key passage, I believe, in all of the Holy Scripture. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is about assurance. We've looked at the correct answer to life's most important question, how can a person be made right with God? The book of Romans answers that question by justification, by the grace of God alone through faith in Christ alone very clearly. But the question before us today is how can a person have assurance that that salvation is secure? And that leads us to Romans chapter eight, verse one. Let's read the text together this morning. Paul writes, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as the offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness." But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now Paul begins this portion of scripture with a transitional word, therefore. Therefore means as a result of or in light of. And so really he's saying everything I've said in this epistle up until this point brings me to this great crescendo moment of Romans 8.1, which is my favorite verse in all the Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that implies that there is condemnation for those who are not in Christ, and that's exactly right. We saw that, didn't we, six weeks ago when we looked at Romans chapter 1, and we saw that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. And in chapter 2, where we saw that there is no partiality with God, that one day every person will give an account of their life before a righteous judge. 
And then we came to the good news in Romans chapter 3 that God in his sovereignty and in his mercy has provided a way for sinners to be made right with him. And there's only one way, and that way is through faith alone in Christ alone. And in chapter 5, we saw some of the consequences, the benefits, if you will, of justification. And that is, we've been reconciled to God. We now have peace with God. In chapter 6 and 7, we saw that we are in some wonderful and yet mysterious way united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. As Paul said in Ephesians, even his ascension, we've been made to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. And here in chapter 8, Paul comes to the ultimate benefit of justification, and that is no condemnation. Now, if you know Paul and his writing, he can't just leave it at that. So he goes on for an entire chapter expounding upon why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And I have divided that into three points today. Number one is what God has done. The second point is what God is doing. And finally, what God will do. So let's begin. What God has done, what I mean by that, through justification. Because of what Christ has done, there's no condemnation for those who are in Him. So what has God done? Verse 2 tells us He has set us free. Set us free from the penalty and the power of sin. Look what it says. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What is the law of the Spirit of the life of Christ Jesus? That's simply the gospel. The gospel has set us free from our attempts to win God's love and salvation through our own works. We were all incapable, unable. We all, Romans 3.23 says, fall short. And the truth is, the law was never intended to save anyone. Did you know that the Bible says that the purpose of the law was to stop every mouth? And so when you go to Exodus chapter 20, for example, and you read all 10 of the Ten Commandments, the purpose of those Ten Commandments is not so you could get through number 10 and say, yep, did all that. The purpose of the Ten Commandments is to stop you short to say, I've not kept the law. And because you've not kept the law, then you fall short of God's glory and you need a Savior. The law's intent is to drive you to Jesus. Now, how does He do that? How does He save us? How does He set us free? By sending His own Son as an offering. Look what He says. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. Now, He's not saying that God's revelation is weak. He's saying our flesh is weak and unable to keep the law that God gave us. And so God did something for us. What did he do? Sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is, he took on a human body. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. But God did not save us to leave us there. At the moment of justification, he started every believer on a path of sanctification or personal holiness. And that leads us to our second point, what God is doing. In the past, God has declared every Christian justified, forgiven, no longer guilty for sin. And what He then begins is the process of making us holy people. Now we have to be very careful here or we will fall into the error of works salvation. Let me say it very clearly. No one is saved by their own holiness because we have none. But we are saved that we might become holy. The late great preacher James Montgomery Boyce likes to illustrate this truth with an episode in the ministry of the Lord Jesus that's recorded in the Gospel of John chapter 8. Just listen about the woman who was caught in adultery. 
The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, did you catch the order of verse 11? The same wording that Paul used in Romans 8, 1. He says, I do not condemn you. Paul said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But that's not the end of it. He says, now go and sin no more. That is the orderly progression of every believer. First, we are set free from the penalty of sin, which is hell and God's wrath through justification. Then he starts us on a path of sanctification, growing ever more like Jesus for the rest of our life. Now, what then is God doing in the present? Well, he's sanctifying us. He's delivering us from sin's power. It's not just that he delivers us from the penalty, he delivers us from sin's power. Now, how does he do that? Through his Holy Spirit. Look what Paul says in verse four. He says, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Without the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit, Christians would be led along by our own fleshly desires in the same way that lost people are. And so Paul sets before us in these verses two groups of people in the world, those that are led by the flesh and those that are led by the Spirit. Incidentally, this dichotomy is seen throughout the Bible, both Testaments, old and new. People, humans, like to divide and categorize one another, don't we? We categorize people by age and sex and educational level and hair color and skin tone, all these different ways that we divide people up. The Bible really only gives us two groups of people. And there's various names used to describe these two people, but they're still the two same, same set of people. There's the lost and there's the saved. There's the sheep and there's the goats, Jesus said. There's uh, the redeemed and the unredeemed. And here Paul says those that are led by the flesh and those that are led by the spirit. Now we saw that in the Old Testament. Remember the prophet Elijah? When the children of Israel had become enamored with the gods of Baal, a wicked queen had imported these gods in from her homeland and the people had begun to worship these false gods instead of the true God. And so God sent a mighty prophet, Elijah, to confront them about that. And here's what Elijah said to the people. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. He called them to a crisis moment knowing there's only two groups of people, those that serve God and those that don't. Joshua 
when he was about to lead the Hebrew children into the promised land after the death of Moses, asked them a similar question. When he said, who are you going to serve? Choose this day who you'll serve. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And Jesus, of course, speaking of the final judgment, says, on his right will be the sheep and on the left the goats, those that trust in him and those who reject him. Those who are led by the flesh, Paul describes as spiritually dead here in verse 6. Now, if you know anything about death, it means that a person is rendered insensitive, right? They do not respond to anything from the outside. And a spiritually dead person is spiritually dead. They do not respond to spiritual stimuli. They are insensitive to the things of God. They are unmoved by the glory of God. They are unattached to the people of God. But it gets worse. He goes on to say that we are hostile towards God. Our mind is set on the flesh is hostility toward God. In fact, the scripture says fellowship with the world is enmity with God. He said, wait a second, pastor. I might not be a strong believer, but I'm not the enemy of God. I, I mean, I, I have warm feelings towards the church and towards God occasionally. Well, the scripture said that the point is not that a person who walks by the flesh thinks of themselves as an enemy of God. It's that God thinks of himself as their enemy. That's the real issue here. And when you find yourself an enemy of God, that is a fight you will not win. He says we're rebellious against God in our unredeemed state. In fact, we are totally unable to please God in any way. But on the other hand, those who have been redeemed by grace have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We now are equipped to serve God, that is to fulfill the law in us. But hear me very clearly, we are not saved by good works. Rather, we are saved unto good works. Paul says a similar thing in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace have you been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Now, he, he could not be more clear, right? He says it over and over again. We're not saved by works, but by grace. But when he finishes that thought, his very next sentence is this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I want to point out again that Paul presents here two options. Look at verse 9 back in Romans 8. He says, however, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to them. And so in the two categories of people in the world, you either have the spirit or you don't. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is not reserved for some superset of especially devoted Christians. What Paul is saying is either you're born again or you're not. And if you are born again, you have the indwelling presence of the Spirit. Progress in sanctification is the mark of every truly saved person. In other words, the way you can have assurance of your salvation is by observation of spiritual fruit. The way to have assurance of your salvation is not some vague memory of repeating a phrase after a pastor or walking down some aisle, or even filling out a card somewhere. 
Assurance of salvation comes through the production of spiritual fruit. And every truly born again person will have spiritual fruit. Now that's not to say that every Christian will progress as rapidly as every other Christian or have an abundance of fruit as every other Christian. But every Christian will have some spiritual fruit. Does that mean if you're truly a Christian you'll never sin? Of course not. Go read Romans chapter 7. Paul talks about his own struggle with sin. It does mean that when we sin as Christians, we confess that sin. That is, when we stumble on the path of sanctification, we get up, we dust ourselves off, and we continue forward. Paul calls this our Christian walk. It's not physically putting one foot in front of the other. It's how we behave and how we think and how we speak and how we make decisions day by day. And by now you're wondering, what in the world does this have to do with Easter? And the resurrection, well, just everything. Look at verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, when Paul uses that phrase, if, sometimes he means whether you do or you don't, but usually, as he does here, it means because. He's writing to Christians in Rome. And he says, because the Spirit does dwell in you, you have assurance that one day he's going to raise you not only spiritually, but physically as well. And that leads us to our third point, what God will do. In the past, He's justified us. He's declared us not guilty as a righteous judge through our faith in Christ alone. He's in the process every day of making us more like Jesus through sanctification. But one day in the future, He will even redeem our mortal bodies and give us a resurrected body like our Lord had. In fact, in verse 10, He says to Christians, your body is dead. And then I went second, Paul. If you're writing them a letter and you expect them to read it, how can they be dead? Well, he's saying you're as good as dead. Because as the writer of Hebrews says, it's appointed to man once to what? Die, and then to be judged by God. You will not get out of this life alive, and I won't either. And so he's writing to people who have sin's curse upon us because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. We are born with a death sentence. And so Paul says, even though the body is as good as dead, the spirit has been made alive. Do you remember in John chapter 3 when Jesus was speaking with the Pharisee Nicodemus? He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, how can I, being old, enter a second time into my mother's womb? Nicodemus had the same problem that most people who heard Jesus teach had. They were thinking in terms of the physical, and he was teaching in terms of the spiritual. And so he says you have to be born of flesh, but also of the spirit. And that rebirth, being born again, that regeneration is a spiritual one. When you become a Christian, you're not suddenly in your body filled with supernatural youth and strength. You'll get old and get sick just like everyone else. But your spirit is made alive. And you come alive and become sensitive to the spiritual things and to the things of God. And here's how you know you've been born again. Let me give you three ways that you can recognize regeneration in your own life. Number one is with your relationship with God. You want to 
Spend time with God in prayer. You want to learn more about God. You want to talk about God. You want to draw near unto Him. The second is your relationship with God's Word. The Bible says of itself that it is our spiritual milk and meat. In other words, it's what gives our spirit its nutrition. Without nutrition, we have no health. Not many of us would go days and weeks and months without eating physical food because we know it would have a detrimental effect on our physical body. Yet how many professing Christians go days and weeks and months without taking in spiritual nutrition through the Word of God? And let me just say very bluntly, if you have no desire to spend time in God's Word, it may give evidence that you are living in the flesh. That is, you have not been born again. And in the third sign that a person has been born again is their relationship with other believers. You want to be around Christians. The time between Sundays seems eternal to you because you can't wait to get back in fellowship with your church family. And as wonderful as it is that we've been made alive spiritually, there is more. He says, because God's spirit is in you, the same spirit that brought back Christ from the dead, you also will receive a resurrected body. Why is the resurrection so important? Why do we make such a big deal about Easter? Well, it's because of what we saw in Romans 10, 9, and 10 a few weeks ago. That the resurrection is the summation of all the gospel. Remember what Paul said that we can say to any sinner, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's not to say that other parts of the gospel are not essential, but that if you believe in the resurrection, the implication is that you believe in the rest. Because the resurrection is the high point of the gospel. The literal bodily resurrection of Jesus is a fundamental and essential doctrine of Christianity. I was so pleased when I opened the Baptist paper this week and I saw a quote from a member of our church. When asked about the resurrection, this is what he said, quote, without the resurrection, the cross is a sad ending of a good man, end quote. And that's what much of the world thinks about Jesus. He was a wonderful person, a great example to all of us, but he was a misunderstood martyr in the end. And if that's all Jesus was, then he is relegated to the scrap heap of history because there have been countless other good men and women who have been martyred for a good cause. But he's more than that. He's more than a man, he's more than a prophet. He is God in the flesh who left the glories of heaven to take on a human body so that he could accomplish his mission, which was to live a perfect life so that he could die the perfect atoning sacrifice for your sin and for mine. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. The resurrection shows us that God the Father was perfectly satisfied with everything God the Son accomplished. We call that the doctrine of propitiation. He is satisfied with the Son. At the resurrection, God one more time, as He had done twice already recording the Gospels, declared, behold, my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And at the resurrection, 
Jesus showed his victory over the ultimate enemy, which is death. And so justification, dear friends, frees us from sin's penalty. Aren't you glad of that? There's no condemnation. We're never gonna have to stand before the Father and fear that he's going to condemn us. Jesus has condemned sin in his death. And we are being freed every day through sin's power through the process of sanctification. Also a work of his spirit. But at the resurrection, what we call glorification, we will be freed from sin's presence. Isn't that going to be wonderful? That we're no longer going to have to fight this flesh. We're no longer going to have to battle temptation because we're going to be freed from even the presence of sin. The resurrection shows God's approval and satisfaction with God the Son, but it also shows his approval with us. Because remember we said in Romans chapter 6, in some miraculous and mysterious way, for everyone who puts their faith and trust, we are now said to be in Christ. And because we are in Christ, if God the Father is pleased with Christ, he is pleased with us. And so the title of this message is Assurance Through the Resurrection. And here's what I mean. Will there ever come a time when God the Father ceases to be satisfied or pleased with God the Son? No, indeed. And therefore, there will never come a time for those who are in Christ that God the Father will ever cease to be satisfied with our salvation. That's what gives us the assurance that we've been not only made right with God, but we will continue to stay right with God. There is therefore, because of that wonderful truth, no condemnation, past, present, or future, for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. What about you, dear friend? Which category do you find yourself this morning? Are you in the flesh? Are you in the spirit? It's only two kinds of people. Those that are saved, those that are lost. If you're saved, you have the spirit of God living in with you that enables you to walk in truth. If you're lost, you're spiritually dead, hopeless and helpless. Your only hope is for the Holy Spirit of God to open your eyes and to give you the faith and grant you repentance so that you may receive his free gift of salvation. Would you receive it today? I don't know of a better time on the calendar to receive the gift of salvation than Easter Sunday morning. I invite you right where you are. Call upon the name of the Lord. Put your faith and trust in him. Declare that he has the right to rule and reign in your life and be born again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the assurance of salvation. It does not come through repeating words. It does not come from writing our name and address on a card. It comes as we understand that we are in Christ. And because you are pleased with him, Father, you are pleased with us. And because there is no possibility that you would ever reject your son, there is no possibility that you would ever reject those who are in your son. And so we say with Paul rejoicing today, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. And we thank you for that and declare your glory through it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. 
To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.